Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here. I want to wish you a happy new year, happy 2024, and uh, so excited you are attending this Sunday morning. I want to introduce our series called Anchors. And, you know, I'm anticipating, and as I'm sure many of you are, uh, 2024 to be a turbulent year, a presidential election. We still have a couple wars going on around the globe, and that can be unsettling. But as a Christian, we have much to be settled on. And so this series, I want to focus on really three things. One, I want to encourage us to be eternally minded, that our anchors rest in the gospel, which rests in eternity. Number two, out of Ezekiel 37, I want us to be anchored in the word of God. God's word will give you life and hope and joy. And then finally, I want us to be anchored in the church. I want us to see the local church as the bride of Christ. I mean, think about the beauty of the bride of Christ. And I really believe in 2024, if we anchor on these three things, God will give us strength, hope, and joy as we journey through this year. Happy New Year, and welcome to the new series, Anchors. With that in mind, grab a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 14. John 14, it's so good to be here with you guys. I missed you last week. Thanks so much to Pastor Tito for filling in, did an excellent job. I wish I could say something spiritual, you know, like, oh, I was at a pastor's conference or I was on a mission trip. Uh, but no, I went with my dad to go see our 49ers beat up on the poor and helpless Washington commanders. Uh, it wasn't much of a contest, but it was still a good time. Uh, but we had a great time, and it's great to be back with you guys uh, as we're kicking off 2024 with a new sermon series called Anchors. Uh, as Pastor Sean already mentioned, we want to spend the first three Sundays of the year talking about things that should be anchors for our souls as followers of Christ. And here's why I think that's significant. We live in a world that is constantly changing. Constantly changing. Uh, to illustrate that, I, I want us to get out our flux capacitor or whatever, get in our time machine, and let's go back in time a little bit, okay? Let's go back, not 10 years, not 20 years, let's go back 30 years. I'm 30 years old, okay? So I'm a newborn baby at this time. Uh, 30, in 1994, Steve Young is about to lead the Niners to their fifth Super Bowl title in 94. Uh, but more than that, think about the world in 1994. Um, Think about technology back then. You've got your—do we even have CDs yet, or was it still cassette tapes? Do we have CDs? Okay, I was a baby. I didn't know. Um, think about things like payphones. Those were still a thing that people used, those artifacts. You know, your kids are going to be asking, what is that? Uh, we still used payphones. Think about if we were to go back in time and talk to someone from 1994 about how the world is today. Imagine explaining an iPhone to them. Imagine explaining social media, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, all of these things. Imagine all of the world events that have shaken the world in the last 30 years. Things like 9-11, things like the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the things about the early 90s that gets me is whenever I watch Home Alone, the thing that I most love about Home Alone is how they get on the airplane. Like they just sprint through the airport and jump right on a plane. <laughs> Does that happen anymore? No, the world has changed so dramatically in 30 years. Okay, so now back in our time machine, we're back in 2024. Now we set it to future, and unless the Lord returns first, we go to 2054, 30 years from now. And I, this thought experiment, if the world has changed so dramatically in the last 30 years, what on earth is it going to look like 30 years from now if Jesus doesn't return first? We can't even imagine 
What's the purpose of that illustration? Guys, we live in a world that is constantly changing all around us. Constantly changing. And as Pastor Sean mentioned, I'm not a prophet, but 2024 has the potential to be yet another very turbulent year. And so in the midst of that, as followers of Christ, we need to keep our hearts focused on things that don't change, on realities that can be an anchor for our souls in the midst of the storms of life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start these three Sundays of the year by talking about things that don't change, anchors for our soul. And to put it very simply, those three things are the gospel, the word of God, and the church. We're going to talk about the eternal hope that we have in Christ through the gospel. We're going to talk about the power and the authority of the word of God. And we're going to talk about the beauty and the importance of the church, the bride of Christ. So this morning, we're going to talk about the eternal hope that we have in Jesus through the gospel. And here's the main point of my sermon this morning. Christ is our anchor who gives us peace in this life and hope for eternity. So this morning, we're going to study the first six verses of John chapter 14. Very famous, very well-loved passage of Scripture that many of you have heard many times. So my hope this morning is that we'll be reminded of the beautiful truths of the gospel, and that that will increase our confidence in Christ, that in the midst of a world that is constantly changing, Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we can put all of our confidence in him. With all that in mind, let's read these verses together. John 14, verses 1 through 6. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know that where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, these are precious words to many of us. There might not be more comforting words in all of the scriptures, Lord, I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would work through your word, that you would open up our eyes to see even more clearly and more fully this morning the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and that our souls would rest in him, that we would be anchored in him no matter what we may face this year. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Help us to understand this word for your glory, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's begin, as we always do, by setting this passage in its context. Okay, so this is the Gospel of John, an account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 14 takes place on the night before Jesus' death. So following John chapter 13, uh, in John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. They celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Judas is revealed as a betrayer and goes out, and Jesus breaks the news to his disciples that he is leaving them. That's what happens in John chapter 13. And the disciples would have been understandably distressed at all of this news, all of it hitting all at once, that one of their own was a betrayer. 
that their, that their master was leaving them. They would have been distressed and troubled. And so John 14 begins this lengthy discourse in John called the Farewell Discourse, John chapters 14 through 16, where Jesus is giving these instructions to his disciples in order to comfort them and encourage them. And so in this passage, as we're talking about being anchored in Christ this morning, I want to show you three things that that means, three realities that it means to be anchored in Christ. The first is to be anchored in the peace of Christ. To be anchored in the peace of Christ. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is at the same time a command and an invitation. It's a command, let not your hearts be troubled, but it's an invitation into the peace that Christ offers. There's something really fascinating here I want to show you. So if you got your Bibles open, we're in John 14, but, but look over at John 13, verse 21. So this is the same night. This would have been maybe a few minutes earlier from when Jesus spoke this. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And then he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Same word. Now, is this just an example of do what I say, but not what I do? I don't think so. What's going on here? How come Jesus is troubled in his spirit, but he tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled? Let me give you two suggestions. First of all, why did Jesus come into the world? To be our sin bearer, to be our substitute, to be the one that would bear our sin and our sorrow and our shame. Is this just one more hint that Jesus was troubled that night so that they wouldn't have to be? That Jesus bears our troubles so that we don't have to. But next, isn't it interesting that Jesus is in an extreme state of emotional distress this night as he knows that the next day he is facing the wrath of God in the place of the sins of his people? So much so that a few hours later in Gethsemane, Jesus is going to be sweating drops of blood, extreme emotional distress. And yet, even in the midst of that, his heart is with his people. He doesn't come to his best friends and say, hey guys, comfort me, encourage me. He goes to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's just a reminder of the kind of savior that we have in Jesus, that he is a sympathetic friend that his heart is ever with his people. As we've already mentioned, 2024 has the potential to be a turbulent year on a global level, on a national level, but let's bring that down to an individual level. This is the time of year for optimism, right? It's seven days in, so you probably haven't broken those New Year's resolutions yet, but February's coming. This is the time of year for optimism. But spoiler alert, you will have troubles this year. You will have trials this year. How do I know that? Because I'm a pastor. And people don't call me when they're having a good day. <laughs> Somebody's going to do it this week because I said that. Uh, people don't call me just to say, hey, Pastor Nate, just want to let you know everything's great. <laughs> having a great day. Thanks. See you later. Usually, I'm the one who gets the call when you know what hits the fan. When life is falling apart. Come to the hospital man, I have this relationship that's struggling, whatever it might be. And I'm not complaining because that's the, the ministry that the Lord has given me and I wouldn't trade that for the world. 
to get to love and care for people in their struggle. But here's the deal. A lot of you are going to make that phone call this year. I might make that phone call this year to somebody else, right? Because we all face troubles in this broken world. And when we do, how do we find peace? How can we be anchored in the peace of Christ when those troubles come? Well, that peace comes, Jesus teaches us, through believing in him. That peace comes through believing. Now, in our vocabulary, belief is usually intellectual. It's just, oh yeah, I believe that. When we say that, we just mean there's information that I have in my mind. Jesus means something much more than that. When he says, believe in God, believe also in me. You see, this belief is not just information. It is personal trust. It is a reliance. It is a dependence upon God and upon Christ. What he's saying is, this peace comes when you trust me. This peace comes when you rely on me, when you depend on me, when you don't lean on your own understanding, but you trust me. Paul says something so similar in Romans 15, 13, when he said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. But how does the joy and peace come according to this verse? In believing, through believing. That's how the joy and peace comes, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It is as we take God at his word, as we believe in him, as we cling to the promises of his word, that we can have peace no matter what is going on in our lives. It's a gift from Jesus' hand to troubled hearts. This is what he says again in this chapter. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Some of you probably came in troubled even this morning. There's a burden on your heart. There's a, a tragedy. There's something that you're worried about, something that you're stressed about at, at work, in your family, health, whatever it might be. This is where the peace comes from. It's a kind of peace that this world cannot offer you. It's a peace that is a gift from our Savior, and it comes through trusting Him. So what do I do? How do I do that? We get in the Word. We get in prayer. We cling to the promises of God. We take God at His Word, and we trust Him, and we don't let go. That's what this looks like. So the first way that we're anchored in Christ is by being anchored to the peace of Christ. But next, we are anchored in our eternal hope anchored in our eternal hope. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's talking about this eternal hope that we have as followers of Christ. Let's look at these verses. In my Father's house, that's a reference to heaven, the place where the Father manifests his presence. And there have been so many beautiful hymns and, and poems and literature written about heaven throughout Christian history to describe it. Let me give you one of my favorites, a classic hymn of the Christian faith written by some giants of Christian hymnody. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. It's a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. 
Again, <laughs> enough 90s references already. Uh, Audio Adrenaline, Big House. Uh, you can tell a man wrote that song, by the way, because man's heaven, of course, is going to have food and football emphasized right out the gate. But the Father's house is heaven. And he says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. I'm sorry, I know the KJV says mansions, uh, but I think the, the imagery here is better with rooms because the mental image is not that we each get our own mansion, like an episode of Cribs or something, but that there's one big house with like billions and billions of rooms. The Father's house, plenty of room for all the kids, that we're all together in one house. The emphasis here is on the presence of the Father, the presence of God. Church, God is what makes heaven heaven. Not streets of gold, not anything else, not food and football and whatever else. What makes heaven heaven is God, that we are in his presence forever. Jesus says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's reassuring them. He's like, as you can trust me, I told you this, and I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, what does that mean? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I think we hear that, and we can get this mental image of Jesus going up to heaven, and he's got his tool belt on, even now, and he's working on our house. Now, here's the deal. I don't think that this is a heavenly episode of Fixer Upper, where Jesus is the true and better Chip Gaines, who's up there working on our mansion. Because there's another scripture that said that this kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the earth. Here's what it means to prepare a place. It means that Jesus did what was necessary for us to get there. It means that Jesus prepared the way. Listen to what Colin Cruz, one commentator, wrote. He said, when Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you, we should not think of him returning to heaven and having arrived there, setting about to construct rooms for his disciples to occupy. Rather, it was by his very going, by his betrayal, crucifixion, and exaltation that he made it possible for them to dwell in the immediate presence of God. The imminent departure of Jesus, which so troubled the hearts of his disciples, was in fact for their benefit because he made it possible for them to follow him. So let's chat for a few minutes. Let's just spend a few minutes meditating on the Father's house. Let's talk about our eternal home. Our eternal home. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He said, I'm going to take you to the Father's house, but, but I'm also going to take you to myself. This is the promise, the presence of God, the presence of Christ. And when did this happen? He says, I will come again. This is the second coming. I will come again. The promise throughout Scripture that, that Jesus is coming again and we will be reunited with him forever and ever in the presence of God. He says the same thing in John 14, 18 when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Friends, that is our hope that Jesus is returning. You know, Megan told me that she was in the car with the kids recently and our oldest daughter, Hannah, is four. And she's been learning a, a good bit of theology. She's super smart. And she asked Megan in one of these car rides, Mommy, is Jesus coming back to this earth? Megan said, yeah, he is. And Hannah said, what's taking so long? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but shouldn't we have that kind of childlike expectancy, that longing 
to see our Savior again. You know, I can remember, this is, I didn't share this in the first service, this is a freebie. Um, I can remember being scared of Jesus coming back when I was a kid. It was too many cheesy movies. Uh, I was like scared of Jesus coming back, but I can remember I had a friend who we were having a sleepover at his house one time, and we were talking about the new Star Wars movie that was going to come out, which back then would have been the third one, Revenge of the Sith. Um, And we're talking about this movie coming out, and he's like, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before then. (laughs) Because heaven can't possibly be better than a Star Wars movie. But listen, that's our blessed hope. That's our longing that our Savior is going to come again and he's going to make all things new and he's going to make everything right again. That's our hope. And we will dwell with him in an eternal home. So what is our eternal home? A lot of us would think heaven, but there's a nugget of truth there. But did you know that the Bible actually teaches that, yes, while heaven is the place that we go when we die, it's actually not the final destination? Think of heaven like a waiting room. Now, it's an awesome waiting room. It's not like the waiting room at the doctor's office, you know, with like the old coffee and the outdated magazines and try not to get coughed on by the person next to you and all that stuff. It's an awesome waiting room. It's a glorious waiting room, but it's a waiting room. It's not the final destination. Our eternal home happens when Jesus returns and heaven and earth become one. This is called the new heavens and the new earth. And this is how it's described in one of the most breathtaking passages of Scripture, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Meg, will you throw me a water bottle real quick? I'll catch it. You can throw it. Boom, look at that. That's good. What a throw. Sorry, I didn't want to be coughing all over the microphone. What will our eternal home be like? We'll be free from sin, first of all. Free from sin. No more sin. No more violence. No more hatred. For those of us that have been followers of Christ for a while, that might be the thing I'm the most excited about. No more sin nature. No more flesh. No more temptation. Aren't you just sick of being tempted? Anybody? Aren't you just sick of sin? Sick of being selfish and lustful and greedy and prideful and all of these things? My heart just longs for that day when I'm free. Not only free from sin, but but free from suffering, the consequence of sin. It says in Revelation 21, there's no more mourning, there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more death. In this new heaven and new earth, there's no more sickness. There's no more cancer. There's no more war. There's no more terrorism. There's no more racism. There's no more hatred. Perfect peace between God and man. 
And what is it that makes this world so perfect? It's the presence of God, the immediate presence of God with his people, that the dwelling place of God will be with man as God always intended it from the very beginning. And here's a great part that we don't think about enough. It's the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to have new bodies, bodies that are indestructible. Isn't that awesome? We're going to have a physical existence. We're not going to be like floating on a harp, you know, floating on a cloud playing a harp all day or something. We're going to have physical bodies. I think, this is Pastor Nate speculating, I think we're going to work, right? Because there was work before the fall. There just won't be any thorns and thistles. It'll be satisfying. It'll be fulfilling. It'll be meaningful. And here's the best part. This new heavens and the new earth, it's not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of life as God always intended it. The best way I've ever seen that described is by C.S. Lewis at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last page of the last book in the last battle. I want to read you this whole quote. This is Aslan speaking as it ends. He said, The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Can you imagine that? An eternity where every day is better than the one before, on into eternity. It's not the end, it's the beginning. The beginning of life as our Creator intended. Now let me ask you, where in this world can you get a hope like that? Who in this world can offer you a hope like that? No one. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so now, let's make this real practical. All this talk about new heavens and new earth, the hope that we have in Christ, let's bring it all the way down. Why does this matter for me on Monday morning when I'm at my job with my annoying boss or I'm at home changing diapers with my screaming kids? Why does this make a difference in my life here and now? Because it teaches us to live with an eternal perspective. It teaches us to live our lives moment by moment with an eternal perspective. Now, that phrase eternal perspective, it's a Pastor Sean-ism. I've heard him say it so many times over the last decade that it's become ingrained in my spiritual vocabulary. To have an eternal perspective means to live my life today in light of eternity. To make every decision today in light of things that will last forever. It means before I do something, I ask, will this mean anything 10 billion years from now or not? That's an eternal perspective. Let me give you a few reasons why an eternal perspective matters for our Christian lives. First of all, an eternal perspective helps us to fight sin. It does that because it shows us and it exposes just how irrational and how foolish sin really is. If I could use a, a word we don't want our kids to say, how stupid it is to sin. Think about it. How bad of a trade is it to trade an eternity of joy that we just talked about for a few seconds of pleasure. It makes Esau's deal look good by comparison. 
foolish to trade an eternal joy for a few seconds of pleasure. But here's another one for you. It helps us to fight worry and fear and anxiety. You know why? I haven't done the math on this, and I'm not an expert, but let me give you an educated guess that 99.9999999% or so, approximate, of the things that we worry about will not matter forever. The vast majority of things that we get so spun up about and so worried about on a day-to-day basis are not going to matter 10 minutes from now, much less 10 billion years from now. And if we were to live our lives by saying, I want to prioritize the eternal things that matter forever, it really puts things in perspective and shows me what matters and frees me from worrying about things that really don't matter that much. But finally, an eternal perspective, it helps us to invest wisely. And I'm not just talking about the stock market. It helps us to invest wisely. At Coastal, there's a phrase that we use all the time, time, talent, and treasure. An eternal perspective helps us to use those three resources that God has given us well. First of all, time. God has gifted all of us with a certain amount of time in this earth. And we need to be asking the question, am I using the time that God has given me? Am I investing it in things that will last forever? Namely, things related to the kingdom of God. Great commission ministry, spreading the gospel, making disciples. Those are things that last forever. Am I investing my time there? Second, my talent. My talent. We have all been gifted by God with abilities and passions and things that we can use. Are we using those things in a way that will make a difference for the kingdom of God forever and ever? Lastly, treasure. These are our material resources, our possessions, and yes, our money. Are we using those things to support things that are going to last forever, to see the gospel go forward, to support the ministry of the local church? When we live with an eternal perspective, we can see how we would invest in those things instead of the things that aren't going to last. So being anchored in Christ means being anchored in the peace of Christ. It means being anchored in our eternal hope. And the last point this morning, it means being anchored in the gospel being anchored in the gospel. Let's look at the last three verses. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He spent all this time talking about how he's preparing the way to the Father's house and he's going to take them to himself. And Thomas totally misses the point. The disciples were known to do that from time to time. Uh, He totally misses the point. He thinks Jesus is talking about like directions on a GPS. How do we know the way to get where you're going, Jesus? You haven't given us directions. How many of y'all are really good with directions? You're just a navigator. You love it. I saw a couple people hands shot up. All right, flip side. How many of y'all stink at following directions and you're going to get lost trying to get out of the parking lot today? It's a lot of us. Uh, I I owe my wife lunch for this story. Okay, just putting that out there publicly. Uh, I owe her lunch for this story. But uh, it was at least a decade ago. uh, It feels like another life. I was in a rock band and I was going to get famous. You can see how well that turned out. Uh, And so my band was playing a show in Virginia Beach. 
Uh, and so Megan had just gotten her license and she was going to drive to come see our band play. And actually it wasn't, she wasn't even coming to see me. There's another guy there that she liked, but um, so... <laughs> Uh, she, new driver, she gets on 64, because remember we both live in Gloucester, she gets on 64 to go to Virginia Beach. She's driving, she's driving, she's driving, and eventually she calls her mom and she goes, if I hit Richmond, have I gone too far? It reminds me of that episode of Spongebob, where it's like, East, I thought you said Weast. But, um, so she turns around, she gets on 64 East, she gets all the way to Virginia Beach, so she gets there, like right after my band gets done playing. <laughs> And that guy was there with another girl. So, great night in my wife's life. Great memory. The point was, she did not know the way to where she was going. But that's not the kind of way that Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about directions on a GPS. He wasn't giving them a path to follow. He was talking about himself. Because then he says to Thomas, you're missing the point, dude. I am the way. I don't show you a way. I don't give you a way. I don't give you a path to follow. I am the way. Through a relationship with me, that is how you get to the Father's house. John 14, 6 is one of the most famous and beloved passages and verses in all of the Bible. And I want to break it down in detail with you. First of all, Jesus said he is the way. Jesus is the way. Now, I want to emphasize this very much. Jesus did not say, I am a way. Take it or leave it, if it floats your boat. He didn't say, I am one of many different ways. Jesus said, I am the way. In Christianity, we call this the exclusivity of Christ. That very simply means this, that the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. There is no other Savior. There is no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. The Bible is crystal clear on that. Not only in this verse, when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, but also in Acts 4.12, when the apostles said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to God. And now, that's very offensive in our culture today. Very offensive. Our culture is fine with us saying, yeah, Jesus is a way, and if it floats your boat, and if it's good for you, great. But when we say he is the only way, and all of those who reject Jesus thereby stand condemned, that's when we get in hot water. But that's the truth. That's what the Word of God so clearly teaches. You know, let me illustrate it this way. Um, I, I saw a video years ago, a, a very popular major politician. I won't name them, okay? Um, uh, but you would know who they were if I did. Uh, they were interviewing a man to serve as a federal judge. Uh, and this man was a Christian. And earlier that year, this judge had written an article and posted it online where, that contained this statement. He wrote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. Now, for Christians, that should be totally uncontroversial. That's basic Christianity. That's Christianity 101, that you get Jesus, you get God. You reject Jesus, you reject God. Like, that is the, the basic fundamental of Christianity, that Jesus is the way to God. 
But this politician read that statement in this hearing. He sought to have this man being barred from serving as a federal judge on this basis. And he called this statement Islamophobic, hateful, insulting, and discrimination. And I wish I could say that that attitude was unique to this man, but it's not. That's a very common attitude in our culture. That to believe and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God is hateful. That it's intolerant. That it's bigoted. That it's insulting. Here's the deal. First of all, it's not true. <laughs> because for, we're all sinners. What do we deserve? Hell. We're all sinners. We deserve God's judgment. For God to provide even one way is infinite grace. Infinitely beyond what we deserve. But also, here's the deal. We cannot shy away from that truth. We cannot stand down. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only Savior, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. And we should, instead of saying, why is there only one way? We should celebrate that God has made a way at all. A way that is open to all who will come to Christ. I like to say it this way. Christianity is simultaneously extremely exclusive and extremely inclusive. It's extremely exclusive because there's only one way, and it's Jesus. But it's extremely inclusive because it's for all who will come to him. So let me give you an application of that. Because Jesus is the only way, this is why we're so passionate about evangelism. This is why we're so passionate about missions. Because if Jesus is the only way, then we've got to tell people about him. If he's the only way, then no one can be saved without him. We've got to take this gospel message and declare it from the rooftops. So who are the people in your life, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers that don't know Christ? This should motivate us to share Christ with them. So Jesus is the way. But next, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Again, we live in a culture that of my truth and your truth and true for you, true for me. I'm living my truth, whatever else. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up and said, no, I'm the truth. Jesus is the truth. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus gets to define reality itself. That what is true and what is false is a reflection of Jesus' mind and will. That what is right and wrong is a reflection of Jesus' character. Jesus is the truth. And how does Jesus reveal truth to us? Through his word. Jesus is the truth. And he reveals the truth to us through his word. As he said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And when we believe and cling to the truth of the scriptures, as we're going to talk about in much more detail next week, it does something in our lives. It brings freedom. This is what Jesus said in John 8. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom comes by clinging to the truth of God's word. That's a reflection of Jesus. A lot of people will say that, you know, they've been enlightened or they've been set free or whatever else it might be when they run away from God. That's the opposite. Running away from God is slavery. It's slavery to sin, slavery to the evil one. 
Following Jesus brings freedom, the freedom that comes from submitting our lives to his truth. So Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Last but not least, Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. In the same way that Jesus does not just give a way, in the same way that Jesus does not just give a truth, but he is the way, he is the truth, Jesus does not even just give us life. He is life itself. It's similar to what he said to Martha in front of Lazarus' tomb when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? He is the life. Jesus is life itself. And when we come to him, when we're united to him by faith, he gives us both abundant life here and now in his presence. And he gives us eternal life into the future. Let me ask you, do you have that life within you? Do you have that assurance that Christ is in you and that you have life? How can you know, how does Christ enter into your life? He does it through the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is God in the flesh. That though all of us have sinned and rebelled against our creator, Jesus entered into this world, that he lived a perfect sinless life that he died on the cross, bearing the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin, that he bodily rose from the grave so that when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ, we will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's how we have that assurance of life. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you don't have that assurance, man, don't leave without letting me or one of our prayer team members talk to you after the service about how you can know that Christ is in you and that you have eternal life. Well, at this time, I'd like to invite up the prayer team, and I'd like to invite up the worship team. And we're going to close with singing in just a moment. But as we're doing that, I want to leave you with a final thought. We're going to be talking these three weeks about anchors in our lives. And in the midst of the storms that we go through in this life, we need to stay anchored to Christ. And as we've seen this morning, Jesus gives us peace even amidst the storms of this life, and he gives us a hope that will last forever. Only Jesus can be our anchor. So let me close with this question. Is there anything in this world that you've been anchoring your life to other than Christ? That thing that you're looking to and expecting that to be your security, that to be your stability, that to be your meaning. You don't know what that is? Let me help you. Here's a few questions you can ask yourself. Number one, what do I desire more than anything else? What do I feel like I have to have to be happy? Or on the flip side, what am I more afraid of losing than anything else? That's your anchor. That's what you're leaning on. That's what you're depending on. And I'm here to tell you, if that is anything other than Christ, when the storms come, you're gonna be tossed all about by the waves. Only Christ is the sure and steady anchor for our souls. So come to him whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, come to him, rest in him, lean on him, depend on him, rely on him, trust in him. Trust in Christ. And when we do that, we will hold fast to the anchor and it shall never be removed. Let's close with prayer. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for these words that you have given us, these words of eternal life. Lord, forgive us 
Forgive us for the ways that we fall short of your glory. Forgive us for anchoring our lives to other things except for you. God, help us give peace to troubled hearts this morning. Give hope to those who are in despair. Help us to know that you are the way and help us to boldly proclaim that message from the rooftops until you return to take us to yourself. We love you, Lord. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name.